all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello and welcome and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Mike Slatman, with our co-host, Donna Ingram. Since this is our first show, we want to tell you a little bit about us before we get into into the topic with Dan Madrakowski, an eminent researcher uh, in fire. Um, I grew up in North St. Louis, and uh, and I'm a, a veteran of the U.S. Air Force during the Vietnam era. I'm also a former police detective and have been teaching and working with the fire service since 1971. I have a master's degree from St. Louis University in urban affairs, criminal justice, and I am honored to be, to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators, the global leaders in fire investigation. I have traveled and taught internationally with the with the IAAI, excuse me, <clears throat> and I've been a private fire investigator since 1979. And over my career, I've investigated thousands of fires. I'm a certified fire investigator through the IAAI and have uh, 45 years of experience. My co-host, Donna Ingram, is also very experienced in fire investigations and the insurance industry. Donna? Hello, and thanks for joining us. Uh, I have spent almost 30 years in the insurance industry. I've written policies, underwritten policies, and investigate fraudulent claims as both a licensed private detective and fire investigator. I'm a former director of the International Association of Arson Investigators and currently serve in numerous associations as chairman, secretary-treasurer, and committee member. The reason we're doing this show is to inform you about fire and fire safety and to help prevent intentionally set fires, also known as the crime of arson. Arson costs each of us money in insurance premiums, loss of property, and sometimes loss of lives. We're live, so you can call in with questions at 1-866-472-5788-866-472-5788. Or email us at connect at speakingoffire.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T at speakingoffire.com. Thank you, Donna. Uh, Dan uh, Madrakowski is a eminent speaker. Uh, he's a researcher. He's a scientist. And he uh, has been involved in fire uh, testing and investigation for many years. Uh, Dan, how did you get involved with uh, fire? Were you, uh, when you were a kid, would you like to set a lot of fires? How how did you get involved with this? <laughs> I guess as with uh, most kids, there's a certain fascination with fire. But uh, in my case, I got my start as a uh, co-op student. Uh, I was uh, in college and kind of looking for something to do. And there was a, a notice back on a bulletin board, a physical bulletin board. This is uh way before the days of uh, cell phones and iPads and apps and whatnot. And uh, it was for the National Bureau of Standards Fire Research, and they were looking for interns. And uh, so I started with them as an intern and uh, eventually got my uh, fire protection engineering degree and uh, continued to learn as, uh, as time went by. And I spent a little over 30 years with the National Institute of Standards and Technology uh, conducting research of all sorts uh, into basic fire dynamics, fire suppression, 
but also uh, a number of areas uh, resulting in investigations. Uh, we did quite a few firefighter line of duty death investigations, and then there were some major investigations, such as the uh, post-fire earthquake investigation in Kobe, Japan. Uh, we were in the oil uh, oil fields of Kuwait after uh, all the oil wells were uh, attacked, uh, making measurements of heat release rate and heat flux uh, on the oil wells. Uh, the station nightclub fire and uh, the Cook County Administration fire are two other rather large, uh, large loss fires, both in terms of uh, property and uh, certainly life uh, loss that uh, I had an opportunity to be part of a team to look at in terms of uh, conducting uh, experiments on exemplar materials, uh, developing input data for fire models to develop a simulation. And in the case of the station nightclub, we also did a full-scale uh, reconstruction of part of the nightclub to look at the impact that sprinklers would have had on the fire, as well as to recreate the initial fire growth by itself. Well, that makes you more than qualified to answer this question. What is fire? Ah, what is fire? So fire, uh, in, in the simplest form, we can think about the fire triangle, that we need to have three components in order to a fi- for fire to occur. Uh, we need heat, we need fuel, and we need some oxygen, and the oxygen is uh, 21% oxygen in the uh, Earth's atmosphere. So we have some availability of oxygen. We also have fuel all around us, uh, whether it's the furnishings in our home or whether it's our clothing, uh, components of automobiles. Uh, pretty much everything can, can burn to one degree or another if it's uh, a hydrocarbon-based uh, material. So it's got fuel in it. It's, got, it's storing fuel. And we have various heat sources around us, but they have to come together in combination and in appropriate proportion in other, to get the chemical reaction of combustion. And uh, once we have that chemical reaction where the oxygen and the fuel gases are interacting and burning, uh, then we generate heat and we generate what people recognize as fire as an open flame. And uh, in order to keep that open flame going, we need a chemical reaction to be continuous. Um, so we have energy that feeds back to the fuel, and then that fuel keeps producing itself and the fire keeps going. A very simple example of this would be a candle, uh, where you would take a, a match, which would provide the initial heat uh, to the wick, and the wick has in it some wax, which is sort of in a solid liquid form, but as soon as it gets heated, it turns into a gaseous form because solids don't burn and liquids don't burn. Only gases burn because the fuel has to be in a gaseous form to mix with the oxygen, which is already in a gaseous form, and then we get our, our combustion, our fire. And the flame from the candle then feeds heat back to the wick and back to the wax and keeps that process of the wax going from a solid to a liquid that goes up the wick and then into a gas that burns around the wick. So what you're saying is basically it's a gas, it's not the wick itself. That's correct. Uh, The gases are what's actually burning. The wick is just a carrier that has uh, a lot of surface area to get the uh, liquid wax uh, transformed from a liquid to a gaseous agent. And if you look carefully at a candle flame, you'll see that around the wick it's really hollow because that's a very fuel-rich area. And, and then it turns sort of blue, and then the yellowish areas around the edges where, it's, uh, where the 
soot particles are basically under the highest amount of energy bouncing back and forth into each other. Uh, that's what's giving you the glow from the flame. Okay, well, I, I was recently talking to a lady on a, named Raina on a plane, and she told me how she learned about candles uh, and how um, they could start fires when she had her uh, children sitting at a table and while she was washing dishes, and they decided to add some paper napkins to the area of the candle. Um, can you – yes, so uh, – and that caused a little bit of a fire, but um, – and she put that out. However um, – Dan, once once these fuels get going, what what causes the uh, fire to spread through the house? Well, basically, uh, the fire is generating energy, and heat is a form of energy. And so that heat is being transferred, let's say, from just a, a small open flame like a candle. It's being transferred by convection, which is the uh, flame is heating gases, and the gases are moving uh, through the room. And also it's transferring energy due to just light energy, and that's radiation. And one way you could uh, look at this is if you had the candle, and let's say you had your hand to the side of the candle, say, five or six inches away, uh, you would feel a little bit of heat on your hand. And that's the heat that's line of sight being directly fed to you by radiation, light energy being transferred from the candle flame. Now, if you kept your hand the same distance away from the flame, again, about five or six inches, and rotated it over to the top of the candle, the palm of your hand would feel quite a bit warmer. And the reason for that is that fires transfer most of their energy uh, in convective, in the hot gases. Uh, Typically between uh, about 60 to 60, 60 to 70% of the energy from a fire is transferred via the hot gases, via convection, and the remaining percentage is transferred due to radiant energy or the energy that's transferred just due to light or electromagnetic transfer. So um, in order for us to start a fire, we need to be able to transfer enough energy from the heat source to our target fuel to raise it to the point where it will pyrolyze. And what that means is take that solid fuel and break it down just due to heat alone, break it down into combustible fuel gases, and basically the smoke that you might see coming off of it, and then let that mix with oxygen and get it hot enough so that it would auto-ignite. Another way that we could transfer heat to start a fire might be conduction. Uh, An example here might be uh, a plumber or a workman working on one side of a wall, soldering a pipe, and not realizing that on the other side of the wall, uh, that pipe might be in contact with some uh, thermally thin fuel like napkins or paper or some kind of combustible insulation. And the next thing you know, he's transferred enough heat via that pipe to pyrolyze that material, get it to off gas, the gases catch fire, and now fire spreading on the other side of the wall or in a wall cavity, and that uh, the workman doesn't appreciate that. We've had a number in, a number of incidences like that. Uh, very recently, say one in Edgewood, uh, Edgewater in New Jersey, where I believe they lost 150 units because a workman was working. Uh, the fire got in the, a cavity in the wall, went up and got into the roof space and spread much faster than the uh, fire department could stop it. Thank you. That's what I was going to ask next is how, how quickly does a fire spread through, through a house, let's say? Uh, fires can, can spread through a house very rapidly. Um, in fact, fires, there's evidence that indicates fires are getting faster. The fuels in our home over the years have changed. 
if you think about it, um, you know, just 10, 15 years ago, nobody had a lithium-ion battery in their house. Uh, nobody had a laptop. Uh, not many people had cell phones, or the cell phones they had certainly didn't look like cell phones we have today or the chargers. Just a few years ago, nobody had a hoverboard in their house. And now we're seeing that these have become sources of uh, accidental ignitions in some cases uh, that are spreading fire. And then what they ignite next would be typically in a house furnishings. Uh, if they're in a bedroom, they might ignite the bed clothes or the bed. If they're in a living room, they might ignite the sofa or the chair. <clears throat> and while years ago, the chair and sofa might have been made out of natural materials, such as cotton uh, with metal springs in the cushions, and a wood frame, and then metal support springs and whatnot. Uh, today's furniture is made out of polyurethane foam, polyester batting, uh, lightweight uh, engineered wood stapled together. Um, and as a result, the fire can spread to that faster because it's a lower density material, but also the material has a higher energy content because the synthetics are synthesized from petroleum products. So the uh, polyurethane foam uh, on a per pound basis might have twice the stored energy as say cotton would have uh, pound for pound. And uh, as a result, once they get burning, uh, they can spread the fire a lot faster. They burn very inefficiently because they're so fuel rich. And you'd think, okay, well, that's good. It's not going to burn as fast. That's inefficient. The bad news is the inefficiency results in a lot of unburned fuel gases collecting in the house these fuel gases are toxic, which is not good for the homeowner or anybody that's trapped in the house. And they're also fuel, so when they get hot enough and have the appropriate ventilation so that the conditions of the fire triangle are met, they will start to, the flames will start to roll the ceiling and will eventually transition a compartment if it has the air available to flash over. So when tests were done by NIST and others years ago on older furniture, they were measuring times to flash over for a room and contents fire uh, ignited with an open flame on the order of 17 minutes. So once people heard a smoke alarm uh, activate, they would have over 10 minutes to safely get out of the house. Uh, when these tests were run again a few years, um, just a few years ago, with the synthetic furnishings, they're finding that people only have maybe three to five minutes available time to get out of the house because the fires are developing so much faster. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, we have about three minutes left until the break, but I, I did want to ask you about um, what's the best, in, in, your, in your opinion, what's the best first safeguard uh, when it comes to uh, protecting your home? Well, your certainly family? your first line of defense is a good uh, smoke alarm and actually multiple smoke alarms. The code may only require uh, one smoke alarm on each floor, but you're really, uh, they're typically not that expensive, and uh, you have to think about this in terms of life safety. Uh, what's your family's safety worth? And uh, so a smoke alarm in every sleeping room as well as on every floor uh, is, is what I have in my home, um, uh, interconnected smoke alarms so that when one would trigger, it would trigger the rest of them and people throughout the house could hear it. Uh, then you need to have a uh, evacuation plan. Uh, so that you know different ways of getting out of the house in case the fire is blocking the, the door you normally use or a stairwell you normally use, what's your uh, options to get out of the house. So those are sort of the two least expensive and basic ones. Of course, when you're looking for a new home um, or when you're looking for a new apartment to rent, one thing you always want to keep in mind is to look for automatic fire sprinklers. 
because that's like having a firefighter in your home uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, they respond when the fire is relatively small and will control the fire, prevent flashover, uh, buy you time to get out of the house, and buy the firefighters time to uh, not only save someone that might be trapped uh, if they, they're unable to self-evacuate, but also buy firefighters time to help save some of the property as well. So uh, smoke alarm is certainly the, the first line of defense, and then the, uh, the best line of defense uh, would be automatic fire sprinklers. And it's my understanding that uh, retrofitting fire sprinklers now uh, into your home, not only is there a movement by uh, NFPA uh, and uh, to do that, but uh, that it's become less expensive. Uh, have you found that? It's become less expensive, and there's certainly more options available to do that now. And so uh, I wouldn't say that that's widespread at this point in time, but I, I certainly think that that's uh, going to be more popular in the future. Okay, thank you. Um, we're going to go to break here in a moment. Um, and when we do come back, we're going to talk about the holiday season. So I hope you stay with us. And, and we're speaking of fire. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show... Please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for listening. Before the break, we were discussing fire safety in your home, Dan. Um, Holiday season's upon us. Tell us, what are some of the sources of fires? Well, in uh, the holiday season in North America, of course, occurs during the wintertime. 
And so uh, with the winter, that brings also changes in the weather. And uh, typically, our weather is drier, meaning that the relative humidity is lower in people's homes. So right away, once we drop the relative humidity uh, below, say, 30%, uh, fire departments notice an uptick in uh, fire ignitions. And some of these ignitions can occur from uh, improper use of candles. And, of course, with the holidays, more people are uh, using candles either to provide a scent, a holiday scent to the uh, their room, or uh, they're also uh, using it to provide uh, holiday lighting. Uh, portable heaters, as the weather gets cold, people are using secondary heaters. Uh, the portable heaters could be electrical in nature. They could be kerosene fire heaters. Uh, some uh, jurisdictions around the United States do not allow uh, kerosene heaters to be used in buildings, and others don't have any rules or requirements on it at all. Uh, people tend to use their fireplace in the winter and during the holidays, uh, wood stoves. Of course, there's uh, with the Christmas trees and decorations and whatnot, people tend to use more extension cords uh, to supply their holiday lighting. So all these things are very safe when they're used properly. Uh, so the big, the big deal is uh, unintended use or improper use. So in the case of candles, uh, bringing candles too close to a combustible material whether it's a dry tree or a curtain uh, or some kind of uh, artificial snow or cotton batting or anything like that, um, or just even your clothing, getting your clothing too close to candles can result in an ignition. Uh, so it's important that if you're going to use candles, you use them safely. Uh, you keep them in an area where they can't get knocked over accidentally. You keep them in an appropriate container where the wax won't leak out or spill. And uh, most importantly, keep the flames away from combustibles. Uh, typical guidelines are keep them away at least 12 inches. Uh, portable heaters, any of the electronics uh, or electrical uh, features, whether it's a, a portable heater or lighting, uh, extension cord, you want to make sure that you're using the appropriate size extension cord. Of course, uh, given that I work for UL, we would uh, encourage you to use, look for the UL label so that it's a uh, appropriately tested and listed uh, electrical appliance and extension cord. Um, you don't want to overload the extension cords. Extension cords come in with uh, different wire sizes, basically. And the bigger the cord, the more, more power flow it can handle, just like a water pipe. A bigger pipe can easily handle more water flow than a smaller pipe. So you don't want to overload a skinny extension cord by putting a uh, multiple plug uh, on it and plugging three or four things into an extension cord that was only intended to have a small electrical load on it, maybe one item plugged into it instead of four or five. So make sure you don't overload extension cords, you don't overload multi-outlet strips, and, and most importantly, don't overload the circuits in your home. Uh, most circuits have some sort of protection in their home. Uh, nowadays, either a circuit breaker or a ground fault interrupt uh, type of protection or an arc fault interrupt protection but again, uh, you don't want to rely solely on that all the time. So take, take heed not to overload the circuits. In the cases of uh, fireplaces or wood stoves where we're actually burning, we have a solid fuel that we're getting to the point of heating up so it will give off the gaseous fuel and burn. Uh, there are embers that can, um, if the screens in front of the fireplace or the wood stove aren't appropriately handled, embers could fly out and potentially ignite a, a carpet or a piece of furniture or another combustible that's too close. If the uh, chimneys aren't cleaned or the uh, stovepipes aren't cleaned or appropriately installed, uh, you could transfer heat to a, a wood stud in a wall and start that on fire. 
or where it passes through the roof, uh, you might start a fire. Uh, again, if the, the chimney or the stovepipe hasn't, isn't cleaned regularly, uh, unburned fuel can deposit and condense inside the stovepipe or the chimney flue. Uh, we, basically, it turns into like a creosote or a resin. And once that gets hot enough to start to off-gas and burn, uh, that fuel is supplying itself um, basically because it's been collecting on the inside of your chimney. And as it burns off, it could overheat uh, the capacity of your chimney and, again, spread the fire into your attic or into the house or something. And uh, fire departments around the country in the wintertime get many, many calls uh, for this type of thing. So uh, in part, it's cold weather as well as the holidays. Um, but it's, it's just kind of funny, Donna, that uh, when people think about fire safety, uh, many times they think about, you know, being in public and whatnot. And when we think about being safe, we usually think about our home as the safest place. Um, but when you look at the fire statistics and the fire data, uh, more than about 85% of the people that die in fire, die in fire in their homes, the place where they, in theory, should feel the safest. So again, that's where we relax, we become complacent, and that's why it's important to consider the heat transfer from a candle or a wood stove or, or a, a uh, electric heater that you're using and, and use it responsibly. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about Christmas trees, but I wanted to mention a couple of things to our listeners. And one was you were talking about lack of humidity. And when you know that your your home is is really low on humidity is when you see static electricity. So when sure. you zap zap your pet or your partner or <laughs> touch a lamp and, and we call that static electricity, that's actually a lack of humidity in the air. Absolutely. And also, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, and I also wanted to mention that on our website, we're going to have a video that was put out by NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, um, uh, with a Christmas tree. And one is dry and one is watered. Have you, if you've seen the video, it shows side by side the difference between the two trees. So I just wanted to share that real quick. Oh, and, and it's, it is an amazing difference. And we've conducted that experiment ourselves many times. Uh, when the tree needles uh, are wet, uh, they contain a lot of moisture. And it takes a lot of thermal energy to cook that moisture off before you're able to uh, burn the needles, um, and as a result, you can. If as that's why it's important to keep the tree moist, um, check the needles, make sure they're not falling off, make sure that the branches of the tree aren't crispy at the end, which means that they're pliable and and have a lot of moisture. And then it's very difficult to get a fire to spread. But once the moisture content in the needles of the tree itself gets below, say, thirty percent, uh, the tree becomes very prone to a very rapid uh, fire spread. Uh, type of incident, even from a small flame and um, or potentially some sort of electrical overload that could lead to a small flame. And I, I think um, the public doesn't fully appreciate, you know, you look at a candle and it, it looks kind of friendly. It gives you a warm glow in your house and you think, you know, how could something like that uh, transfer so much energy, especially when you think about it from the radiant heat flux perspective that we talked about earlier, just the light energy that's coming off of it. But if you were to um, touch the flame to something, that open flame, even though the total amount of energy being released is relatively small, 
the intensity of the energy or the heat flux of the energy is very high. So you can have a heat flux in excess of 100 kilowatts per meter squared coming out of a candle, and most items will ignite when they're exposed to a heat flux somewhere between, let's say, 25 and 40 kilowatts per meter squared. So a candle really has a lot of energy in terms of being able to ignite things and get combustible materials to uh, to burn. So even though the candle looks like a small kind of innocuous, uh, safe sort of thing, it really uh, can pack a lot of destructive energy. Uh, to let the the listeners have a sense about what heat flux is, that may be an unfamiliar term, it's the amount of energy that hits a surface. It's how we account for heat transfer. And if you were to go outside on a nice sunny day, a cloudless sky in the summertime, sort of the, the feeling you get when you come out of a air-conditioned building and you walk outside and the sun hits your skin and your skin starts to feel warm right away, that is about one kilowatt per meter squared. That's the radiant energy that we get naturally from the sun when it's not filtered by clouds. Uh, if your skin is exposed to, say, three to five kilowatts per meter squared, you would feel pain within seconds. So this is the sort of thing, if you're doing some holiday baking or cooking and you happen to stick your hand in the oven uh, to grab something real quick and, and forget to have the pot holder or the uh, oven mitt, and you sort of get that instinctive, yeah, my hand is, is, is hurting, and you pull it back really quick, you're in that 5 kilowatt per, uh, per meter squared range of heat flux. And you then watched me bake, about, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then as we talk about the fire development, uh, when we have a fire that is built from, say, a, a chair, and the flames is extended up to the ceiling, and the gases have ignited and start to roll the ceiling, Everything in the room is getting exposed to about 20 kilowatts per meter squared, which is typically enough energy to get them all to start to off-gas or give off the fuel gases at one time, and then that leads to flashover where we transition from an environment where we have the hot gases up top in the compartment, cool gases down low, to where it's well-mixed burning from the ceiling all the way down to the floor, uh, temperatures in excess of 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, and then the heat flux you know, would go to 60 kilowatts per meter squared or, or higher. In other words, everything's burning, everything's on fire, nothing would survive that environment. But if all that can start with just uh, a little candle uh, touching a combustible uh, piece of material, and as we spoke about in the, in the first section, that kind of transition can happen within minutes. It can happen very quickly. Yes, and I wanted to follow up on what you said earlier because I have a friend in St. Louis that told me that uh, their family members had sometimes burned Christmas trees in the fireplace. Now, I would like oh. you to talk about not burning Christmas trees but also not even burning uh, wrapping paper as some people do. I mean, you know, Christmas trees and wrapping paper, all these things have relatively large amounts of energy, and you can overwhelm the exhaust capability of your chimney. Uh, the chimney is sized basically for a certain uh, range of heat release rates, and if you start to put um, portions of dried Christmas tree branches in there or larger portions, you could easily overwhelm that, and then the flame only has one. If it can't get out of the chimney, the next big opening is the opening of the fireplace or the wood stove itself, and it's going to come back into your room. At a minimum, uh, fill your house with smoke. In the worst case, spread fire and, and potentially uh, spread fire into your home and, and cause you a big problem. So, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely not something that you want to do. Um, dispose of the tree outside. 
Uh, the trees have a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, with the needle space the way they are, they have a what in the fire investigation service or, or fire dynamics, uh, you talk about certain materials having a good surface to mass ratio. So let's say we had a piece of pine wood. If it was in the form of a two by four and you want to light it with a candle, it's going to take you a little while to transfer enough heat to get that lit. And it's not going to burn very well if you only have one piece of two by four. But if we have multiple pieces of two by four stacked up, or if we have pine in the form of a tree and needles and branches and good spacing so air can get in there to allow the fire to breathe, and these thermally thin elements can ignite quickly and then re-radiate energy between the, between the other elements, that's what really causes the flame to spread rapidly. So if you do watch the video that Donna recommended, uh, you'll see that in the dry tree, just how rapidly the flame spreads throughout the tree and the, uh, the thermally thin elements, in other words, the needles, the dry fuel elements. And uh, it's, it's amazing how fast that happens. So it's the same thing when you're talking about wrapping paper. Uh, wrapping paper has a, is relatively uh, uh, not, it's not dense. You're crumpling it up perhaps and throwing it in the fire. So it has a low surface to mass ratio. And if you throw one piece in there, you'll notice that it flares up pretty good. And uh, the challenge you get into is when people have a lot of it and they want to burn it all at once and, and they can overwhelm the uh, capacity of their, of their fireplace. So just stick with some appropriate wood uh, that should be in the fireplace and, and you'll uh, enjoy it. Again, have the appropriate glass doors or screens and a fireproof mat on the hearth so that uh, if an ember does come out, it doesn't uh, spread and start a fire. Well, yes. Um, I also want to underline this to our listeners right now. Every time there's a fire, fire departments respond to it once it's reported. Every time they do that, the fire department personnel and police are put at risk. They can be hit by trucks or cars en route there. They can have heart attacks from exertion during the firefight. Things can fall onto them, walls, and kill them. Uh, so we not only want to prevent accidental fires, but anybody that's anticipating ever setting a fire, do remember that you're putting people at risk and, and your, your neighbors, your friends, your family. It's sort of like the electric space heater. You want to unplug, unplug it while people are sleeping. You don't want to put it within three feet of combustibles. And that's because you don't want to cause fires. And and incendiary fires are ones that are intentionally set, uh, and and that kills people. That is felony murder. So if you're, you're, let's try to cut back on accidental fires uh, and listen to our great guest here. But also, let's think about never setting a fire on purpose. Okay, so um, Dan, one more thing about that. Um, you were talking uh, da- daily watering is the best. Is it not for Christmas trees? Uh, a- absolutely. When you get the tree home, you want to uh, cut the bottom of the trunk off so that it, it has a fresh opening so it can suck up water, get it in water right away. It could be that the first day it may uh, consume quite a bit of water. A thing that people um, don't recognize sometimes is you could be bringing home a relatively dry tree, so please check that at the tree lot ahead of time. Uh, you don't know when the tree was exactly cut. You don't know how long it's been there. If it's a season where it's been 70 degrees, you know, the first part of November, like some parts of uh, America have experienced, that could lead to a tree drying out. So you want to do everything you can to rehydrate that tree and get that tree uh, 
moist as soon as possible. Then you want to check it daily. And again, if it's very dry in your home, if the uh, relative humidity is down to you know below 30% or less, uh, the water that you're feeding the tree could be evaporating uh, relatively quickly. So it may be a situation where you may need to put the water in twice, twice a day, depending on how big your water reservoir is. But the key thing is check the needles. Uh, as soon as the needles get dry or, or stiff or the ends of the branches, as soon as that tree's dried out, it's time, unfortunately, that you've got to get it out of the house uh, once the needles are dropping and, and brittle because there's sort of no turning back at, at that point in time. And again, even with a, a moist tree, you want to be very careful at the heat sources around the tree. And normally, again, a, while a tree fire uh, occurrence is relatively rare, thank goodness, uh, the problem is when they do occur, they can become lethal very quickly um, because it, it just spreads so quickly. So even though it's a, it's a rare occurrence, but we want to do everything we can to, uh, to avoid that. And if you're using an artificial tree, you want to be careful as well. Uh, again, you want to look for a tree that has, if it uh, comes with electric lights, or there's a new listing for the, the Christmas tree with the lights in the tree itself. Uh, UL has a safety listing on those trees. So again, that's something you might want to consider when purchasing a uh, an artificial tree as well to try to provide the safest combination for your family. Yeah, UL listings are important for ev- for all of your appliances. So we're going to need to take another break. Um, and when we come back, Dan is going to talk to us about common causes of fires uh, in the home. So please stay with us. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. 
Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for listening. Before the break, we were discussing Christmas fires. And next, we want to talk about some common causes of fires, in particular in kitchens. Dan, what are the most common causes of kitchen fires? Uh, The most common cause of any fire period is uh, cooking fires in the kitchen, Uh, typically the result of unattended cooking. And um, this would be the scenario where you might have something cooking in grease on the stove. Uh, The grease reaches its auto-ignition temperature of around 350 to 380 degrees centigrade and uh, would start burning. And then as the heat from the flames feed back into the pan and uh, continue the burning process, the flames extend, uh, the rate of burning will increase, the flames would extend, and typically would start to get a kitchen cabinet involved. And within a few minutes, again, this could potentially lead to a flashover if there wasn't a person there to interrupt the spread of fire or a automatic sprinkler system to uh, control the spread of fire. Um, typically, a lot the even though kitchen fires have really large numbers in terms of frequency and occurrence, uh, the vast majority of them are usually limited to the container that the fire started in because somebody's present and they'll get a lid on the fire or get some baking soda in the fire. Most importantly, turn the turn the power source off, whether it's a gas stove or an electric stove, turn the burner off. Um, so you stop, you stop dumping heat into it, and then you try to control the, uh, the flame itself. Um, in many cases, some tragedies result when people try to take the burning material and move it. And normally what happens when <clears throat> people try to do that, they become burned. They end up dropping the burning pan of grease and potentially spreading the fire to uh, other parts of the house or blocking an exit to the house, and, uh, and tragedies have resulted. Uh, so again, just uh, with your family, think about a, a kitchen fire. Don't leave cooking unattended in the first place. And um, if it does catch fire, have a fire extinguisher handy or some baking soda handy or an oven mitt and a lid so you can quickly smother the fire. Basically take one of the legs of the fire triangle out by getting rid of the air and then get rid of the heat, diffuse the heat from it. If you do plan on using a fire extinguisher, Make sure that uh, you follow the instructions of <clears throat> pulling the pin, aiming it, and sweeping. <clears throat> Pardon me, the pass uh, method. But you don't want to have the extinguisher on top of the pan. You want to give yourself a little standoff distance because the uh, extinguishing media, the dry chemical that comes out of the extinguisher for your home fire extinguisher, comes out with quite a bit of energy. And what you could potentially do is splash burning grease out of the pan if you're too close to it. So stand off a little bit and uh, apply your extinguisher and it'll be a little bit of a mess to clean up, but it's certainly better than uh, somebody getting hurt or uh, or burning your kitchen down. And I'm going to switch gears. Thank you for that on you here because I have a question. Uh, why do I need, from a listener, why do I need to turn off the engine when I gas up my car? Well, one of the things that you have to worry about is when you're uh, putting fuel in your car, uh, there are vapors that are coming out of the, uh, out of the gas tank. And um, so those vapors, remember, the, the liquid gas doesn't burn, but the gasoline in vapor form is what burns. And uh, gas will evaporate uh, at basically room temperature and below freezing temperature. It will go from a liquid to a vapor. So... 
<clears throat> we have have the potential for fuel vapors around. So one of the things you'll see at all the gas pumps is no smoking because you don't want to have an ember from a cigarette potentially that might ignite the vapors. Um, you may have seen on uh, social media some cases where uh, people uh, had left their car running or they're getting in and out of their car. And as you mentioned, in the dry weather, they can uh, create static electricity and create a spark. And as a result of that spark, uh, that ignited the vapors and, and caused a fire in the gas station and things like that. So the same thing, your, your car has a lot of electrical systems. Uh, you want to you want to take away heat sources, shut the engine off. You want to take away the electrical sources. You want to take away opportunities for static electricity uh, to minimize any chance of an unwanted ignition. Uh, similar things have occurred when people have been fueling um, gasoline tanks, say, in the bed of a plastic, uh, plastic liner bed of a pickup truck, and they build up a static electric charge between the uh, fuel tank, the gasoline tank, and the bed of the truck, and then when they move it, it, it causes a spark and they get an unwanted ignition. Well, <clears throat> I think um, I think a lot of people do not uh, understand that, and I've of course seen them uh, smoking. What I do is as a fire investigator, and I recommend this to other fire investigators that are listening. If they see people getting in and out of their cars uh, during this cold weather, and uh, and do I warn them? Uh, don't do that. You know, uh, touch the touch the metal before you go anywhere. Uh, try to dissipate that static electricity. Right, I've right. got basically uh, ground yourself. Yes. 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 And uh, okay. So uh, there's something in the news that I know you can discuss. Uh, it's the ghost ship fire in Oakland where we lost 30 people, approximately, uh, where they were killed. Um, you were involved in, in some of those issues. Can you, can you tell us about that, Dan? Well, I mean, uh, so I, I was involved in the Station Nightclub fire, for, existence, for example, which was a, uh, a public assembly fire. It was a, was a nightclub. Um, they had some issues there with overcrowding. Uh, they had issues there in that it was uh, grandfathered into uh, a code so it didn't have automatic sprinklers. Um, they had some inappropriate uh, wall lining materials that were used uh, that were not per the existing code. Uh, basically, flammable uh, polyurethane foam was used as a sound barrier, and, uh, and that was the first item ignited by some uh, inappropriately used pyrotechnics that the band was using. They, weren't, uh, they didn't have a license or any kind of uh, permit for using those. And then the fire spread very, very quickly, and within 90 seconds, uh, the smoke was down to the floor, and um, anybody that hadn't basically gotten out of that immediate uh, dance floor area, um, their health was being compromised, and uh, many of them died out of uh, 440 people or so that were in the station nightclub. 100 died, and uh, I believe 250 or 270 had very uh, significant burn injuries. Uh, so what we're learning from the news for the ghost ship fire is that it was also a large structure. Uh, it was being used as a public assembly for a party, uh, but it was not. It did not have uh, again any appropriate permits. Uh, the building did not have a certificate of occupancy to be used in that way. The building was supposed to be used as a uh, a warehouse. Uh, in fact, we're learning that there were people that were actually living there, so it was uh, being used as a residence again. Uh, it did not have any appropriate fire protection features. It did not have any appropriate compartmentation. 
Uh, does not appear to have had any fire detection. It certainly didn't have any automatic fire sprinkler systems. And it's not clear that there was any appropriate emergency egress uh, there. We don't know that for sure, but based on uh, what people are discussing in terms of uh, they didn't even have a, a legitimate stairwell, uh, or at least not the one in the, in the main area. Um, if we think about fuel loads, and we were talking earlier about thermally thin fuels, uh, some of the videos that we've seen, although it's uh, been very beautiful in, in uh, how they had wood racks with fabrics hanging over it as sort of the wall divisions and, and various types of beds and, and, uh, and other areas kind of compartmented off, which looked very nice from an art perspective, uh, from a fire protection perspective, um, you know, it, it basically was what it was, uh, which for uh, over 30 people became a death trap. And, um, you know, so as, as people go around for the holidays, um, you need to have, you want to take care of yourself and your family. And if you're going to areas of public assembly, I think it's important that uh, you make yourself aware of your surroundings. Our brain uh, is pretty efficient but it wants to take, um, make use of information that we already have. So in emergency situations, if uh, people entered a building one way and then all of a sudden they're told to evacuate or a fire alarm would go off and they need to evacuate, uh, most commonly you want to revert to using the information you already have and going out the same way you came in. Um, in some instances, we find that Victims were within, you know, maybe 10 feet of, a, of an exit, uh, but they were turned and, and focused on waiting in line to get out of the front door as opposed to turning around and using an exit that may have been more accessible to them. So give your brain the information early on when you go in the place, do a pre-plan, look around, see where the exits are, and, uh, and that'll help you in the case of an emergency to get you and your loved ones uh, perhaps out an exit that's less crowded and, and get out in a quick amount of time. Right. And, and speaking of that, and we've only got a couple of minutes left here. Um, why uh, a lot of people saw on TV, and I know I got some questions about it in the station nightclub fire, you, you saw all of the people stacked up on top of each other uh, at that front doorway. And they were even talking and talking to the news, well, to, to the media and, and things of that nature. Why did those people, how come they couldn't get those people out of there? Well, so, so basically, if you think about people standing real close together, almost like wood sticks, and then imagine that the people in the back of the line are getting burned. They have intense fire on them, and so they start to push. And once they push hard enough is basically they push that whole stack over and the people become piled up and intertwined, and then it became very difficult to get them out. And because the fire was developing so fast over their head, um, unfortunately, not everyone could have was rescued out of that doorway uh, because of the uh, the rapid um, growth of the fire uh, overcoming them. I mean, you saw in the video some rescuers, their clothing was catching fire as they were trying to help pull people out of the pile in that doorway. It's very, very, very sad. Uh, the stories we're getting from some of the survivors from the ghost ship was that, again, smoke layer came down very quickly. The fire developed very quickly. People were, you know, just by the, the skin of their teeth or, or luck that they got out and others didn't. Yes, it's, it was it was tragic. Um, well, what should people do, Dan? You've got um, 
I know you should have a, a escape plan, even in your own home. Um, yes. Are there's, can you give us a couple of uh, websites that you're involved in or something that would help uh, people? Certainly. Well, we, we talked about fire prevention. We talked about an egress plan. We talked about smoke alarms and automatic fire sprinklers. One thing we didn't talk about was using a door. Uh, sleep with your doors closed at night to limit the path of a fire spread. If uh, you're stuck in an apartment or somewhere and you can't get out because the hallway's full of smoke or fire, close your doors and, and uh, be prepared to uh, make sure that firefighters, when they arrive, know where you are. Uh, but use the door use the door to block. And if you want to get more information, we've got a great website, new website we just put out uh, called uh, justclosyourdoor.org. And um, common spelling, closyourdoor.org. And there's a catchy little song for kids. There's also some information. Uh, there's a number of case studies on there where, in one case, an entire family was lost as a result of a fire. But uh, one of the young children lived, and the only difference between her living and her brother dying was that her brother's bedroom door was open at night and her bedroom door was closed. Uh, if you want further information on the research that we're doing, such as some of the work that we're doing with the National Institute of Justice on our uh, fire investigation research. Uh, we'll be posting that material at ulfirefightersafety.com. So if you just Google UL Firefighter Safety, and that'll get you to the webpage of the Firefighter Safety Research Institute where I work. And a um, lot of information there, and uh, all of it's freely available. There's a lot of online classes you can take if you're interested in fire dynamics or firefighting tactics. Uh, and we're no, doing more and more outreach with regard to the uh, fire prevention and public safety piece. Well, I want to thank you for all your great information, Dan. Uh, we, I'm sure that the general public and firefighters have learned a lot from you. Now, we're going to have to close now. So join us next week when Dr. John DeHaan, Dr. David Eikhove, and Investigator Tom Fee will join us. Um, Dr. Eikhove is uh, – Dr. DeHaan and Eikhove are both authors – and, uh, and researchers and, and profilers. And uh, Tom Fee has over 45 years experience also and with thousands of fires. And Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for your great information. We'll make sure that we put these uh, websites up on our, our site too. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Join us next week. Donna, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.